Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Amazon's It Girl, Lindsay Mustaine. She's the antichrist of HR. She's bringing humanity back into human resources. This is going to be a two-part series. In the first part, we follow her through her career path. And in the next episode, we're delving into her tragic personal life. But she's coming out on the other side because she is a survivor. Lindsay, welcome. I'm so excited. Me too. Oh my God. The Antichrist of HR, badass in the flesh. The Antichrist of HR, I am here. Oh my God. I've been such a fan of yours for so long and we so rarely get on camera together. This is amazing. Yeah, I feel like it's like twice ever actually, I think. So this is a big deal. I'm really excited. Well, and I'm a super fan of yours, if you didn't know that. I think you're amazing and I'm loving what you're doing with everything. So I'm just also incredibly proud of you. Aw, thank you. That's so sweet. It really means a lot. Like the other day when I was on your webinar and you were teaching people how to leverage their LinkedIn and you gave me a shout out as somebody who has built their brand, that meant so much to me. I was like, wow, because I admire your work. I love your brand. I think you're totally put together. Even that webinar that you did, I was like, oh my God, you're such a pro. So I really oh. Love that is that. like my like lowest key ones that makes me feel really awesome. I'm like, this is the easiest one of all the things I, I train on. I really want to talk about kind of the evolution of your career and how it doesn't just happen overnight. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 20 years in the making. So yes, <laughs> I've been looking at a lot of things. Like I've been looking on LinkedIn a lot and I see people's stories and I think, what was I doing? I can't, oh my gosh, I can't remember who I was looking at. And I was like, it just seemed like it was like that for them. But so many times we think that it's actually like that. And then it really, it's been forever that they've been working on it. So I'm like, it took me four years to get brave enough to say the things that I'm right now, but it would have been the thing. Like I thought all along, I've always been thinking like, Hey, we can do better. The system is broken, but the idea like, Hey, we should actually like completely trash it. And like, you make the changes incrementally, right? Like you have to start little by little to make the shift, to go to the next thing. But we start with that idea, right? Like where you can't just jump to the top of Mount Everest, right? Like you have to climb it a little bit. And so, so many of the little things, like they're little tiny wins, like the ability to just decide to walk out of Amazon one day, that, that was like a major milestone for me in my career. And so those things, like for somebody that is the big moment for them. And that's usually what I'm trying to get them to is that big moment, being willing to, I'm going to look for something else. Cause I'm willing to declare that I have something more of value. I think I was talking, I talk about this a lot with my people. Cause they're like, you're so confident. I was like, let me tell you the first time I ever spoke in front of a room, I was on the same level. So it's not even like actually in like a speaking. And there was maybe like 12, 15 people in there. And I hyperventilated. I read the book like, just like this. And I talked so fast that I couldn't even breathe. And then by the time I got to the avocado, they're like, <gasps> and I was like, <sighs> and I sat down. That was my first ever talk. And everyone was like, you did really good. And it was so bad. <laughs> Where was I, that? I was like 2002 is probably when it happened. And it was in my very first corporate job probably 200 hours of work into this thing. And I like vomited all these words across in a 
10 minutes and it was awful. It was awful. And I even had like, oh my God, it was so cheesy. At the very end, I had a little um, thing on my PowerPoint where it said, hallelujah. <laughs> so I even had sound effects. That is how far I have come from the now. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. But again, that just shows like how much of a personality you have. Well, you know what is funny is I've always been really, really like extroverted and like that's always in me. And I probably, but I think that what makes me different is I really actually care about people. Like I'm not so much interested about what my story is. My story is the enablement for people to actually tell their story, which is what I really care about. Like I'm, my ego obviously is a little bit involved here, but mostly what I care about is just amplifying other people. But when I was a kid, like I wouldn't do drama or any like acting or anything. Cause I was terrified to be on stage. That is paralyzing the idea of that, like even role-playing. So when I make my people role-play, I'm like, so we're going to role-play. Let me just tell you, if this was me, I would hate me too. So just know I love you. And this is a safe place. <laughs> But this is how we actually learn. But I was like, I just know this is awful. And it's been, it was awful for me. So every time anybody makes you role play in a corporate world, I'm like, I hate you people. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? And then it's funny because then I can just put on, you know, my Sasha Fierce, which is Lindsay fucking Mustaine. That's my Sasha Fierce. And uh, somebody asked me once, they're like, what, who do you want to be in your photo shoot? And I was like, I asked, I was like, I don't know, no, is that a thing? And so I asked people like, Oprah, and then like this. And I was like, okay, I'm like, well, I'd like to be Lindsay fucking Mustaine because I really don't know who else to be. So that is why, like, I put that personality on, and and that's the person who shows up with complete authority and can and talk and be compelling and connect with people. But for the most part, yeah, I still have the shakes and wobbles. You'll if you see me five minutes beforehand, still freaking out. So we have to kind of go back to you amplifying other people's voices and where that stems from oh. is your daddy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So my story with my dad and I, I just shared this story and it is so hard to tell this one. And in the very beginning, when I started telling this, I would start to cry. So I think I can get past this point, but my, my whole journey, you know, they talk about where the heck did you actually begin? Like what, what actually happened for you to become this person who you are today? And I was like, well, my HR person, you know, like I started like right away. That was my HR person. I was in human resources. I was doing talent acquisition. That was my thing. Right. So there's, there's my real story. Right. And they're like, what, why do you care so much? Like why, like, you know, our goal here is mitigate risk for the organization, make sure we don't get sued. How do we protect the employer? Like everything is around. How do we make sure that we stay safe as the employer? And I was like, well, how have we forgot about the people? How have we forgot about the people? And so then I had to do a little introspection, if I'm really honest here. And it took me back to a moment back when I was about eight years old. And at this time, my dad was the breadwinner for my family. And he had, he was, you know, one of those tried and true professional workers that went to work. You know, he's a generation difference than I am, obviously, and would go in and like, what do you want to do is you find a job and you work there until you die. Right. Like that's the goal. Like I want this to be my last employer. When people still tell me this day, I'm like, I don't know what world you're living in, but that was it. And that was like a sign of a really successful career. If you'd really done it, like I'd been here and I could retire. And I knew that like when he was getting ready in the morning, like one of the last things he would do before he would walk out is he would put on a watch and he had a gold watch. He'd worked there for 20 years. In fact, I was going through some of his things a while ago and I actually found his certificate. It actually, I kind of cried at that time because there was a moment in my house and 
it was like everything was fine and things weren't. And what had happened was I heard the word pink slip, which I really like the color pink. I still do still love pink, <laughs> but um, pink slip happened and everything changed for me in my life, like in an instant. And so what I did is I watched my dad go from, you know, gainfully employed and really successful at what he did to feeling completely worthless, to feeling like he had no, nothing to offer the world. He kept getting dinged as overqualified, which is one of those things for me, like when people use that word today, it makes me sick to my stomach. And so I have a real bad trigger around that word and the people that are really experiencing this. And I watched him job search for years. It was like the, it was another recession period. And I watched like his entire worthiness just really melt away. And I'll take it like a little sidebar here. I, I went, I was asked to speak at the Aviara in San Diego, which is a beautiful five-star hotel. And I was sitting there and I had this moment because I was, I, I was born in California. And I remember one time that we, I was traveling with my dad and we ended up getting a room and it was like a garden room. It was not anything like super nice. I'm sitting in this beautiful hotel. And I had this moment of when I went back to that and I thought my, my dad booked this room. He goes, I would like you to know because we were very, very poor at the time, what a little bit of luxury feels like. I, like, even if you never get another chance in your whole life, that was his whole, like, I was like nine years old, you know, like that was his whole perspective was that this was the it, this was, this would be it for him. It would be it for me. And like, if you watch that, like I have a, a video I did during that time, I literally start crying. Cause I'm like, I, I just never knew that this would be such a triggering moment for me where I'm like, I'm sitting here and look how far I've come daddy. Like, look how far I've come. And so, you know, it was really hard. It was really, really hard times. And my family ended up splitting up and then our house went into foreclosure and my parents had worked really, really hard for years. They bought the, like the worst house and the nicest block. And I'd really invested a bunch of time. And then our house was foreclosed on. And then one day my dad, he went into, he was having really bad headaches. He was a musician actually. And he was struggling to play the guitar. He was having trouble with the reading the music and being able to play the uh, notes. And he walked into the emergency room and they took him immediately back. They found that he had a brain uh, tumor and they immediately went back and they cut open the left lobe of his brain. They found something that was totally inoperable. It was inoperable. And so they closed him up and the man that he was then, he never walked back out. The man, my, my dad was the most brilliant man I've ever known. And of course I'm a daddy's girl, so I might be a little biased, but he never walked back out of that room and he died just a few months later. And he believed that there was something wrong with him and that I mean, like I, I found his resume in addition to all those other things and I was looking at his resume and I was like, this is pretty good. Even for today, it's been more than 25 years, folks. <laughs> like there was nothing wrong with him. There was nothing wrong with the resume. What was wrong was the approach. And so why I got really passionate and why I care so much about people is that one story. And then I watched that same thing happen to me. I went through my own unemployment. What happened in the Great Recession and what happened in the Great Recession? Well, everybody was being laid off. So, of course, you didn't need a recruiter. So I was laid off and I tried to go look for a job that was like nearly extinct. And my lowest moment came when I sat in the unemployment office and I sat there listening to somebody try to teach me how to job search because I was required to be there. Well, this person had never actually hired anybody and I'd already been recruiting for six years. So the part that was just killing me is I should be their first training. <laughs> and second, that I was already doing all these things and none of it was fucking working. 
like none of it. And so it was that point where like my soul died a little and like desperate times made me rethink what's going wrong. Like, what do I need to know? And I tried something completely different that process. Now we know we call that intentional career design. And what we're talking about here is how do you actually design the career that's supposed to fulfill three, four quadrants, which is how do we find a place of passion? What are we passionate about and what we do? And then what do we find purpose? Cause we can be passionate about something, but it's not purposeful. So if you see me, not everybody has a story where I literally was born to do this. Like I was literally born and crafted in this life to do it, but how do we connect those two things? And then how do we turn it in the pursuit of it? And the pursuit of like, how do we pursue passion, purpose, and how do we do it in a way that's the last part, which is profitable. And that's not just for you individually, but for the business, because when we do that, then it's a win-win. And when somebody gets to operate in that zone, that's in the true empowerment, the highest point in their career. And that's, that's what I, um, my original business was really founded on was creating this stuff, knowing, you know, I used to work at Amazon. I was Amazon's it girl. Like I was the most visible employee of everyone on LinkedIn, like more than Jeff, more than Amazon. They gave me my own job. They created it for me. I was given this like opportunity and then completely like able to do my own work and do the things that we're passionate about. And then I got shut down. I got shut down. I got censored. I'm not seeing a consensus of what happens here. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about that it girl moment in time. Yeah. Because yeah, tell me. how does that happen? I was always kind of a rebel in Amazon. And I work with a lot of people who come from Amazon because Amazon is, I had somebody tell me this just recently. They said, if I can be 95% right all the time, but the 5% that I get wrong, I'll spend 95% of the conversation covering that 5%. And that is the culture there is that you have to be absolute perfection, like show no fear, go in. We are right a lot. That's what it says, like one of our principles and those, those things. So I didn't exactly fit in exactly right in the very beginning, but they had chased me for a long time. Like they had tried to, I was on their radar for about four years and I finally was like, oh, I'll take an opportunity here, but I will do it as a contract. I'm not interested in a role because I didn't want to like, I thought I don't want to cry at my desk. I don't want to sleep under it. <laughs> I'd like to have a life. I have kids now. Like at the time I didn't have kids when I was first having these conversations. And so I took it on and I actually fell in love with Amazon. I fell in love with it. I, I was just to be a part around some of the most brilliant people doing some of the most remarkable things, but then I found a lot of my voice in it. And so well, that voice got really powerful. They have like affinity groups. And one of the affinity groups that I had, it was actually about people who are coming in to the company and helping them find new connections. So basically being an ambassador for the entire company. So what I did is I was on this committee for all of Amazon. There's like, I don't know, maybe 12 of us or so. And I was in that room and they're like introducing me and they're like the most visible employee of Amazon. So that's how I got this title was that because that's what I've gotten known as. That was my thing. That's why I was on this committee, like very quickly too. I wasn't even at Amazon for maybe there's six months by this point. So it happened really, really quickly. And I got really visible about just advocating for the little guy. And so that's what I got, I got really, really passionate about. And then I sat in a room and I listened to Jeff Bezos ask, he said, what could you do that would change the world? And let me tell you, I was like, like hell if I know, I mean, like <laughs> that was my first thought. I have no clue. I have zero clue. Okay. Just so you know, that's every single person. That's like a trait of a high performer, like thinking you have no ideas. You do, <laughs> by the way, it's what I help people do now. But that's what I thought. I was like, I don't know. And then I'm like, I'm sitting here. I'm the most visible employee. I have zero clue. And I have, I'm surrounded by these brilliant people. And I'm like, yeah, I got nothing. Like I got nothing here. <laughs> 
when it came to qualifications, like as far as like, I don't have, you know, a PhD, I don't have, I went for a for-profit college at night for 10 years. I am the underdog in every way in my career. Like I didn't, I was not born with a silver spoon. I worked for everything I've had. I was homeless as a teenager. I started my first job in corporate before I was even graduated high school, the moment I, the, I turned 18 in March, I started in April, like 12 days later. So I was really highly ambitious. That's the one thing that makes me really different than my peers. But that's, that's kind of how I started. And then I went at night forever <laughs> to be qualified to do the job that I already had, by the way, it doesn't work like that. So that's what it was. I was sitting here and I have really bad imposter syndrome. Like everybody here is like brilliant. And I mean, I'm the one who's chasing them down. There's three people on the planet that can do this job. Lindsay, go find them. Okay. Guess what? I'm really great with people. That is my secret. I really, and I really care. So that was what I was doing and I had no idea. So I sat there and I'm like, what could I do? Like, seriously, like, what could I do? This is Amazon. Like we're fucking inventing a new world, you know, every day. And I got to work on like lab 126, which is the R and D department. So I got to see some really top secret stuff. Like last thing they said to me was like, don't let the door hit you on the way out pretty much. And don't forget your non-disclosure agreement. So I didn't know, but then I sat there and I was like, well, this is the most customer centric company on earth. Why the hell do we not care about the candidates? Why do we not care about people who want to work here? Like there were 7 million applications that had never been addressed on a team of 15 people. Okay. Now some of them had been there for a long time. So there's that, but it was like, do you know how many, like this 30 minutes per application, do you know how much life effort put into that? And how many of those people were customers? They've got to be like 99%. I never interviewed a single person at Amazon that wasn't actually an Amazon customer. And I thought, how can we have some so, so disjointed where we treat like, our customers like they're God. And then we treat, Hey, if you actually go through this, yeah, you're lucky if we choose you. Yeah. Like when we get rid of people at Amazon, we say we got promoted to customer. Uh, that's, that was <laughs> just at my heart. Like we've forgotten about humans. And so I wrote out this entire process about how, you know, as I've done this for a long time at this point, like thousands, I mean, by the time I ended at Amazon, I had over 10,000 personal hires, like not at Amazon, but in my entire career, so what can we do here to make this process optimized? And I was like, there's a really easy way. Like I had, I've used a lot of different recruiting practices. One of the things I came in Amazon was I was really good at high volume. Like I could staff up. One of the things my, one of my leader said, he's like, Lindsay can go into any market across the world. She can understand the dynamics of that local talent environment and recruit for whatever needs to happen. And it's true. So I was able to do these things really, really fast. So I was really good. So lean process is super important for me, but I'm not just looking for like, how do we optimize the process, but how do we do better? Like, how do we do better? And there was a way I did that. So I literally castle wall, which is a Kaizen principle, castle wall, the entire process of how we would go through the recruiting process without any additional headcount, where we would turn people instead of recruiters into talent ambassadors. And we would hire the best and brightest on an ongoing basis where we would never be in deficit. Like we were always chasing and like having a holes in our teams and the teams were collapsing because of the pressure of the added workload. So how do we get away from that? I have the answer. Okay. I have it. Oh, Eureka. And I sat down, I literally was writing on my walls and my team was like, what is going on with Lindsay? But I had this moment. I was like, this is how I'm going to change the world. We're going to treat people like human beings. What about that? I mean, human resources. I actually remember they're humans. Then I went to my boss and she let me get about two minutes in before she said, you know what? I think we got that. And that was it. And I just felt like the little pinprick in my balloon. And it just started letting the air out like, wow. Okay. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. You know, like I had to shake it off, shake it off. Still 
most visible employee. Like I got shit to do here, right? I got something to do. And so then I decided I was gonna write a book. I was gonna write a book. I was gonna tell people like, why the hell? Like if I cannot help them advocating inside for a process that would actually deliver in every way for the company, if I couldn't do that, then maybe I could do it for the individual, right? That's what I'd been doing already. So I decided to write a book, which is Seven Critical Resume Mistakes to Avoid. And that book, which just covers about why 75% of people immediately just get disqualified through um, the process, why people aren't even laying eyes on it. Like it's really basic stuff, like really, really basic stuff. And I thought if I could just get this in their hands. And so I went ahead and I said, you have to file what's called an outside activity. So I filed for that and Amazon never got back to me. So I'm a big believer in asking for forgiveness versus permission. And I went ahead and I set a publishing date and that was in June of 2017. And when I published it, it became a bestseller. I was up there like next to what color is my parachute? Like when you consider that I won, I've never published anything in my life before and had really no business doing it and no authority to do it, that I did that. And it became a bestseller when I gave it away for free. Like I realized people were just thirsting for the knowledge that I had. So I did that. And then my lowest moment when I decided to leave Amazon was when I, I got a message, I was recruiting for a job in Singapore and there were three people in the process and two of them were men, one woman. And she knew that I was an advocate for candidate experience. She said, I want you to know how they treated me. Like you recruited me to come and interview here. We were like of the play power position. She had the highest power position. But guess what? We treat you like a complete asshole and make you feel like you're not worthy of respect. I like to say to people, if you haven't felt like you got run over by a truck by the end of your Amazon interview, and this would be when I would prep people at Amazon, then you did not get interviewed. You do not have a shot of getting that job. Tell me how like interrogation doesn't work at Guantanamo Bay. It does not work in interviews. We can consistently say that interviewing does not predict on the job performance. That's been proven after study after study. Okay. So what, what do we do better? How do we do better? We can, there's a lot, whole answer to that, but when I learned that and she sent me this message, like I just like started crying because <laughs> so I was like, oh, you already like crapped on my idea about how we can like actually treat people like humans. And then here I am like, I can still make change for my little group of people. But no, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't change that. And I got really, really sad. And then I got really, really angry. And so I went from one extreme of really, really sad and writing a really apologetic email to then escalating it and then getting really mad and writing my resignation notice. It, zero clue what I was doing, none, none. But I knew I could no longer sell my soul for a paycheck knowing that was completely in misalignment with my integrity and who I was as a person. Like we were treating people the same way that they treated my dad. So that's what caused me to start my business talent paradigm. And that was four years ago now on a hope and a prayer with zero clue. I like to say I had 14 seconds of business experience beforehand of running a business like this. And here I am today, you know, like we run a seven figure business. We've helped over 15,000 people inside of truly creating the career that they were meant to do. And for the right people, not just like anybody, the true right people who are wanting to do more, like they feel called for a higher purpose. And it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, but it is for the people who want to take control of their career destiny. And they want to have something that at the end of the day, they have something to give back to what really matters, which is our families. Like, let's be really clear. Like, so, and the reason why I do the work as I do is so that nobody ever has to go through what my dad did. And no little girl ever has to watch her daddy go through what he did. That's why I do it. So if I ever need a real reason, I can just reflect back to those moments when I was sitting there and I watched my entire world fall apart based on these practices. So when you talk about like, well, I take it really fucking personally, it's because I was born to do this. Everything in my life made it so I could be this person today. When you talk about your dad, it like literally gives me chills. 
like the hairs on my arm stood up like three times. I feel your purpose. And so does your entire tribe too. I built a business that was built around like love. You see it right here. My background is my highest value. If I do everything with love, which is not a really big HR thing. Like we just love on our people, but it is one of the core human needs is love and connection. So we desperately people like there is an awakening happening where talent and human beings, they realize they can do more. And there's, a, there's a real answer a reason why people are no longer willing to settle for this. Like I am not one of a few, I am one of the many now and the ones who are really revolutionary game changers out there, the ones who are going to actually change businesses. They're also feeling this thing where they get tapped in. They realize there's something new and more out there. And COVID was a game changer for us. Like when we talk about the job seeker, I, I predicted, I was like, right now, what I do is even more power. It's even more potent. We have, you know, six figure salary increases. And I look for people who are like, that's crazy. I just barely make six figures. I know that we can turn it into double that if you follow this pathway and you have, and most of the time it's because you've been chronically underpaid, but that's how you've been programmed to believe that's what you're worth. And how we do this. So the game changer was like COVID is how do you market? What it is that you do? How do you see the worth in what you do? And how do you have like an objective party who's hired for people like you who understands how to articulate to the person who's going to say yes or no, AKA that was me. That's what I do now. And so when we look at this, like I said, you're going to, we're going to disrupt the talent pool. Like if you look at the airline industry and I'm like, wow, you're going to retire all of your, your workforce here that's aging out. And then what happens when we expand back into this? And so like we, you create these solutions and a lot of times it's technology solutions or short-term gap solutions without a long-term approach of how do we create a sustainable employment opportunity for people where they want to stay and they want to stay engaged and it becomes profitable for both us and them. And they're not just doing work. Like we need to get away from the idea of people being cogs and machines, but allowing them to step into their true genius. And when we do that, now that I've worked with 15,000 of these like senior leaders and executives, they are doing this. And with the most like revolutionary CEOs and the leaders of these companies that are, they see this, they're picking up this talent and they're paying them top dollar because they understand that these people are the ones who are going to change the game. It is not like there's one person who created prime day. There's one person who created prime shipping. And it was just somebody at the same level that I was. It wasn't anybody that like, it wasn't a, you know, a C-suite officer. Your people have so much opportunity here to do that if we just spend time to amplify talent. So that's what I'm shifting into now is this call to this revolutionary idea of getting away from traditional human resources because you're literally killing your genius of the people that are in it right now. I want to talk a little bit more about amplifying talent and little ways in which we can do that that goes a long way. Yeah, so there, there's so many, but... I'm going to say like the very first one, like that gets my like hot of the collar is when we choose to use technology as a way of creating a solution for human beings. Okay. So the first one here is like a SAS is not going to fix your culture problem. Wake the fuck up. Okay. Seriously. Your software is not going to do it. I don't care how many surveys you give. That is not going to empower your people. The other thing is like, we're doing really crazy, weird things. Like people choosing to work from home and we suddenly need to give them a pay decrease. Hello, Google, get your act together. Okay. No, your people need to be paid commiserate. Now, what I mean by that is that, yeah, there are going to be people who want to work in the office. There's going to be people who want to work at home and you need to protect. These are your, your assets. This is what you're going to have to protect are these people. And so you want to make sure that they're safe and whatever they do, 
whether it's hybrid at home or at the office that you protect them. That's your goal. And I'm not going to take a stance on like medical here. What I'm saying is you need to protect your people so that they actually get are there to do work because what matters to them is being able to live and that matters to you as well. Okay. And then the other things is like these short-term like engagement strategies, like, yeah, we should plant succulents. We're going to have a succulent planting party or we need to drink on the job. Or you know what? We're sucking on our culture. So we should put a ping pong table in that kind of bullshit actually just infuriates me. Cause one, how, what world do you think that having somebody at the office drinking is better than them being engaged every time that they're at the office or that do you think that there are tears who believe in this like idea of working really hard versus we can work smarter versus harder. How likely is the people who are from a different paradigm think, Oh, you know, they're taking fun, a break for fun. And they're going to be penalized as not a team player. So there's a lot of things that we do where we're like, we should do, we should have this thing. And it becomes like really powerful. I mean, there was Amazon, everybody has alcohol in their drawers. Like it used to be like we had a wine Wednesdays. It turns out to be just like mimosa every day, wine for lunch, and then shots in the afternoon. I mean, it wasn't that extreme, but there were days that were like that. And then I was like, this is why people can survive here because they have to drink on the job in order to be successful, to tolerate the environment. So those are some of the things I get really hot under the collar about, but I think culture is so 1998, like culture is so 1998. And so like culture is a byproduct of environment. So when we think about like, what is the environment you're cultivating? So when I look at, like, I talk about, do you mind if I go into like what the idea around career design really is? Yes, please do. Okay. So career design is what I call this, like, let's stop pretending that human resources, the answer. And I'm going to give a shout out here to my human resources people. I love you. I am one of you, but somehow we forgot about the human part and we began got in the business of mitigating risk for employers solely as the full practice of what we do, right? So what can we do to make money and what can we do to protect the company? Those are the two answers that we have. So we want to have engagement. You know why we want to make more money, not because it's the right thing to do. So all of us are looking for a bigger purpose. Like, let's just be really clear here that a lot of times I deal with people and they've been, they realize that they just have never, ever actually stepped into doing things that they want to do. They've just been a byproduct of whatever other decisions happen in the business. And so when I talk about career design, career design is what I imagine as being the newest version of human resources. So human resources, whatever you want to call it, I'd like to call it risk mitigation (laughs) or internal asset risk mitigation. And I know that the title is not exactly great, but what I want you to think is that should be under compliance or legal. That's why we keep putting legal people over HR because it's a legal problem. Okay. So I'm not saying we can't have the structures of traditional HR. You still need an employee handbook and you do need to have some sort of job description. You need a way to manage it, but only about 3% of your workforce is actively destructive, but let's look at the employee life cycle. So we're talking about from the very beginning is talent attraction. Like, how do we become the candidate, like the employer of choice? How do we start to hire the candidates of choice? And that's all about brand experience, okay? And then there's the actual hiring practice, which is the recruiting, okay? So what I'm looking for is how do we treat people when we're actually bringing them on board? Guess what? This is our first date with somebody. Like our first date, we need to make sure this is the best impression we're ever going to make. Are we making a favorable one in Amazon's case? No. And most of the places I worked at, No, unless you were working with me personally, I could not guarantee that you would have any kind of response or be treated like a human being. From there, it's about onboarding, okay? So onboarding, like to get somebody to proficiency, it's six months on average, okay? So when people come in and they're like, hello, welcome, here's the deep end and good luck to you. Phone a friend if you need help. That's how we mostly do. And I'm gonna say I've been guilty of this too. This is why I've built this structure, okay? 
And then we talk about training. So training is not just retraining, training is usually also a retaining effort. So people want to upskill. Like one of the other key things is core human need is growth. So human beings need the opportunity to do more. They can't just feel like a cog in a machine. So what do you do? You give them opportunities to ascend their career, okay? And it's not saying we give everybody handouts. I'm telling you, we wanna amplify the most powerful talent. And that's a very deliberate process. And then after that, it's just engagement effort. So what do we do for engagement? Keeping people happy on the job. And again, this could be a succulent planting workshop at this point. It could be, but as a single alone thing to just make people like kumbaya, it doesn't work. So you have to have a really successful employment engagement strategy. And then the very last part is succession planning. And this is succession planning for success or for exit. And exiting does not need to be like you lose, like you're not a good fit for this company. I have a, like, as a human being, that was really hard for me when I would hire people and they wouldn't be successful. But what I realized is they weren't going to be successful. So it was better for me to let them go and go on to their next thing. So how do we enable them to go on to their next thing where they still want to be a customer and they still refer people to us? And I mean, the people that can be triaged, not the 3% that need to be actively performance managed. And I would say performance managed a lot of times that's a, that's a trigger for me because a lot of people who are performance managed, that's not their problem because what, so we take this life cycle. I want you to imagine that. So this is the life cycle of the entire process, you know, a talent attraction, employer branding and recruiting, onboarding, training, employee engagement slash retain, retention, and then um, succession planning or exit strategy. When we take that, we measured across these three verticals and what I'm looking for, or I should say verticals, horizontal lines. What I'm looking for is to triage across the first thing. So I said, culture is a byproduct of your environment. I call this the human centric workplace. And there's 10 tenets to this. I won't go too deep into that. But what it's about is that we see human beings for their actual true worth. Like, what is it that we, we see them as actual human beings and not just numbers? Like, we look at that, we kind of try to correct process before we correct the person. And then one of my favorite rules, which comes out of the Harvard Business Review, which is the no asshole policy. Like, imagine if we had a company without assholes, okay? And there are companies who are building principles around this strategy. So that's the very beginning of it. So we have the right environment, then we can do the other pieces. So the other piece that we have to have is that we have to have the right sponsor at the top. So we call this the transcendent CEO. And it can be the CEO or whatever sponsor, COO, whoever is leading the culture and the people inside of this business. And it's usually not your, your chief human resource officer. They might be the advocate, but the person who's really going to make the make or break it is going to be, you know, the chairman, the president, the COO, the CEO, the, those are going to be the people who make the bigger decisions. But what the transcendent CEO does is that they work in a zone of genius. So let me be really clear here. Your zone of genius is not everything you do. Not at all. Your zone of genius is about 1% of what you do. So we know you hire for other things so that you have support and people who do the work in their zone of genius. That's how it should work. Not just what you need. You want the best at what they do, right? That's called hiring for your zone of genius. Now, somehow we've lost this way where CEOs go and they try to be like, I'm going to be the people officer when I'm a developer. Okay. So if that's your thing, stop being the people officer and be the developer and recognize that it's okay to be have your own ignorance around things and bring in and surround yourself with people who are better than you. This is like a president creating a very diversified and experienced cabinet. That is how we need to hire people, okay? We want to have our best advisors around us. So the zone of genius says, I am doing work that's in my zone of genius, knowing that these are the quantum leap shifts that we make when we start to really tap into talent. We want to tap into the ideas that are not just like, oh, we're going to get a four times return. We're going to get a hundred times return. Okay. We're not just looking for those little small things. We're looking for the big transformative ideas. Those are the make or break things that are going to make a business really successful. Okay. So that's what we're looking here. And then the trickle down of this 
is the idea that the zone of genius is what we want to amplify across all levels. So that means people stop being task managers. Okay, so that is the big difference. Task managers are where we babysit you. Like, how do we do this where we stop managing people? Like, they need to be babysat. They don't. We actually are surviving on our own without your supervision at home. Okay, so how do we do that? And that's where there's the equipment across all levels of the employee life cycle. So that's the top. So the transcend CEO and the culture. And then in the very middle, this is where we call the career design area. So our intentional career design. And this is what I see every single person. You need to be an advocate for your own self. But as employees, like we need to advocate for our people. Like somehow we've forgotten that. How many people really do that though? You know, it's less than 1%. You know, it's really, it's, it's, it's why I'm so good at what I do. Because the people, when, when I do what I do with people, I'm like, you're like, unlike anyone else. Like you're the only person who can articulate the value that you actually bring to a company who can see the pain that a company needs. Like I, what I teach people to do is like the CEO of their own business of me, Inc. How do we market that business? And that's when we have that powerful position, we can articulate our value in a way that's deliverable to the person who's going to listen to that message. So me hiring manager that I end up in the yes pile, I can build those relationships. That's what changes for people. So very rarely does it happen. So there's no advocation for people inside of, inside of a company. And they really don't do it. Like we're just hoping I just, it's a lot of, I'm going to say like, I am not a big believer in higher education. I got qualified to do the job I already did. So now what I'm looking for is how do we make sure we do better? So in the course of nine weeks, I can, I can way exceed what you'd make in two years of your MBA program. Like I'll make it, make you back and then make it actually what you spent on your NBA in that nine weeks. We do this because that quantum leap is a magical shift between like where we are, where we believe what we're marketable and how we step into, how do we market that? How do we have a zone of genius? What do we make sure we show up as that? How do we build a brand? How do we interview as such? All of those pieces are what we're really looking, the embodiment of that. It's why it's different. So what if you gave people the choice to advocate in their own career, to ascend to their own, if they did work where they actually felt you know, passion, purpose, pursuit, and profitability. How is that a lose for you? And that's what we want to do for the right people. We want to make sure they're doing work that's really meaningful. Okay. And then at every level, we need to examine how do we take our best players and how do we grow them to the next level? And there's a lot of things that happen with leadership styles where we have authoritarian leaders with people who are really have this, you know, growth mindset and they get penalized for having ideas, AKA me for ideas that transcend what that leader's capability is or would be an affront to their leadership because it threatens their viability in the company. Because we have this like fear is that it's dog eat dog. I survive or you survive. And one of the tenets of the human centric workplace is, you know, win, lose, or draw as a team, we do it together no matter what. So I am not successful without my team's success. And so one of the true traits of a leader is whether or not they empower their people to move up to the next level. I'm curious, like when the majority of most people call you, do they mainly call when they're unemployed? Do they call when they want to advocate for themselves? Do they call when they want to up level? So I would say that my shift has always been around making a job change. So job change, job change. But in the last year, we've really switched to the intentional career design model. So that means that you are the creator of your own reality. And so I used to deal with people when they've been chronically unemployed, like they've been years out in some cases, like four years, more than a thousand applications. And they're just like, I don't know what's next. And I am their last resort. I am finding now that people are realizing because we have thousands of stories of success now that they're like, well, maybe it would work. And they're starting. So, you know, in any kind of new idea, 
there's a time where we have early adopters. So we've kind of reached that point where we're still in the early adoption phase, but it's becoming more pervasive. And we see a lot of everybody. And I'm gonna say there's some good ones out there and there's a lot of not so good ones. People have never actually hired anybody who are career coaching now. So I see them out there all over the place. So I see it becoming a more, and I want you to know, like I really want those people to be successful. We really clear, we need as much help as we can possibly get. I don't know why it's not normal for you. Like you can go to a yoga teacher to learn how to do yoga, but for job searching, like, Hello, good luck. Maybe the unemployment office, because a government agency is really your best resource in general to have success in your life. So we need to get away from some of this old programming. So I do, I used to see that, but now I see people who are like, I'm ready to up level and I want to do this faster, right? I want to do this faster and I don't want to mess around. Like the job search on average is 25 weeks. 25 weeks. Okay. And that's only if you're unemployed, if you are actively employed, like usually I'm going to see them after a year because they've just like applied. And then they like, okay, I'm just gonna go back to work and I'm going to be miserable until I reach my another hot, hot button. And then I get pissed off and I want to go leave again. And that like, why is it that we can't take those things and those people that are really feeling the pain and why don't I have a safe place to go and talk about? And I'm like, it's a leadership issue. It's an environment issue. And it's like, they're not doing work that really matters to them. If we just looked at that, if you look at every single, every issue, if you look at your career, when you've ever had an issue, like with your job, you could ask yourself, okay, did I have the right leadership? Was the leadership the biggest thing? Cause your boss is one of the top three most influential people in your life. Okay. If not, did I have the right environment to be successful? Okay. And then last, did I do a job that matters? If we took all of those we could triage almost everybody before they had to get to that point where they become disruptive employees. We could take the slow engagement and turn it on. Like imagine a hyper-engaged, like people who are working in their zone of genius, doing work that truly matters. That's why we see companies like, and I'm going to be an example, Gravity Payments, Dan Price. He says, if you take care of your people, your people will take care of you. You know, he's one of the most transformative leaders that are out there right now. And that's the mindset of what I see. These companies are making massive profitability but it's a way different approach than what we see traditional human resources then. Now you said you were a bit of a rebel. Are there things that people can do to push back a little bit? So I'm gonna tell you the secret here is always when people ask me like, how do you negotiate salary? How do you do this? Like you have to have one thing in your back pocket and it is walking power, okay? And walking power is the ability to say, I wash my hands of this and I'm willing to leave. There are no stakes here for me and I'm not tight. So we have like, we say golden handcuffs with like C-suite. There are golden handcuffs for people at every level where they're like, I don't know how to do anything more. Like if I looked at somebody with my resume, I'd be like, wow, you're super marketable. And they'd said, but I look at it and I'm like, I don't know if I can even get a job. I'm like, you have to have the mindset here that you are in the business of me Inc. And what do I do to make sure that business is marketable? So that's the biggest thing. And so when I talk about like intentional career design, I'm not just wanting you to think about like, what do I need to do for a job search now? I want like my business practice is really sick. I really want you to never work with me again after you do this once. I want you to never need me. I want to fix the whole industry and unemploy myself because I feel like this is a bullshit problem. We should not be having to do this. People should be, do, be able to do this inside of a business. And that should be in the business's best interest. But in the meantime, that's what I want them to do. But we, we've forgotten the ability of what we have that's inside of ourselves. It's incredibly powerful just as it is right now. So you don't have to do anything else. You just have to really look at what is that I have that's of value to a company? And when I recognize that, 
then I can have the opportunity to walk away. Okay, so when I have walking power, that means that I can walk into my boss's office when they have demeaned me in front of an entire team and I can have that conversation. And one of the things that's most important here is making sure you reduce the emotions and you talk objectively about what it is, not about really how we feel, but what's the impact of what happened. So really being objective is a great way to cover, especially when we're talking about a very masculine leadership style that's really pervasive in the world today. That's another key strategy. The other piece is like, never be prepared to not be looking for a job and always be looking for your next thing. Okay. And what I mean by that is like, one of the things when I go, there's zones of, we call it the success path. So zone. So career power is the ascension of the highest level of success, which is means I am in that, you know, passion, purpose, pursuit, profitability zone, but I'm also getting opportunities. I've already negotiated a job offer and I have my resume ready. That is what I have them do. I want their resume ready to go because when you are in the most highest power position it is attractive to employers. So, you know, the moment that you decide to go out in the marketplace and say, you know what, I'm actually thinking about looking that you would have opportunities. It is just the embodiment of the true high caliber candidacy that we're really looking at. So when you have that, that means that you never feel trapped. Do you think you could ever do this within an organization as an employee again? The idea of limiting. So I get to work when I want to work. I do more stuff. Now I make a bigger impact. I make bigger changes ever. I do not work eight to five Monday through Friday. I do not sit at this station all this time. So what I enjoy is true freedom. So I would say maybe if they had career design, and if that was actually embodied in the organization, so I am uh, starting to work now with employers that really want to take this next step. They want to, they know that they're at the point where they've mastered business. It's not about business. It's about contribution or doing what's right in the world and doing that, knowing that they can make a better difference and they can make more profitability when they employ these practices. And so that's what we're really looking for. So I'll say for anybody who knows somebody, a transformer CEO, or maybe it's you, somebody who should be doing this work because they know inherently this is the next evolution. Like right now, this will be the future. I believe that in my soul. I can predict the future pretty much instead of trends. If you go back Facebook headquarters 10 years ago, like this month, I sat there at the recruiting innovation summit 10 years ago. I said, I have a science says candidate experience is critical. You never know who your past, present or future customers are. When are we talking about candidate experience 10 years now? So the people today, they're the ones who are going to see this. They're going to go, yeah, we can no longer upgrade a jalopy. Like it's a broken down house. The foundation is rotted. We need to build a new, I mean, that's the, that's outmoded HR, traditional HR, the strategy of risk mitigation. Instead, we're changing talent amplification through career design. Okay. I'm going to totally switch gears because I want to know a little bit about your experience with ayahuasca too. Oh my gosh. Okay. I get surprised. I did not know we were going to go into this. So radical transparency here. My brother was murdered in 2019 and you know, I have had a lot of things that have happened in my life since then. And so when I had that happen, so I'm a pretty intuitive person, which is why, like I can tend to, I'm a very spiritual. That's just always been part of who I am. I've had a lot of really interesting experiences all of my life. And I was conditioned to believe those things weren't real and like, <laughs> The conditioning does a lot to you, right? So the programming we were given. And so after my brother died, I had this image that just kept coming to me. So I'm sorry, I'm going to go really deep into this. It's going to be super weird here. Okay. So I had this image that kept coming to me and what I could see, my brother was like, he was stabbed over a hundred times. He was very, very brutal. And I say this with a, a light. I'll tell you why, why it's, I could say these things because he's fine. He's fine. So, and I'll tell you how I know that. 
so I had this image and it was, it was a blood against the wall. And my mom always used to say the, um, the person who you're most closely related to in the world is actually not your parents. It's your siblings. Your siblings are the most, like you share the same blood, the same DNA. There's no one closer related. So like when I saw this, like my blood was spilt on the wall and I don't know why, I mean, I just couldn't get it. And you can imagine I'm in the thickest of grief at this point. And so I, I just kept having this and then this voice came out of nowhere and it shouted in my head, like in all caps and it said, that is not me. And I was like, in an instant, I went from absolute despair and grief to like, is that you? And I began to have conversations with my brother. This happened like, and I've just like, I have a better relationship with him now. So he is totally fine. In fact, part of his like experience in this world was really to go through that. And I'll tell you what I, I realized I've been, I introduced the idea of ayahuasca, which is a very, like a lot of like really, really new age CEOs or people in Silicon Valley do ayahuasca because they're trying to get new ideas. And if you've ever heard of this, it's a vine from the jungle and it creates, you know, this experience, you take this vine and for hours, you know, you travel with an ayahuasca. She's a beautiful and seductive lady. Like it's, an, she's this plant spirit. And she will take you to wherever she is. So when I, when I had it, the experience was just incredibly powerful. I had no idea. I was terrified. Like I was shaking when I took it, but I knew that there was more out there in this world than what I could see and feel. I knew that that had changed. And so I did it. And I, I didn't know what, I just asked for her to be gentle on me and, and what it is. And the, the course of three nights, I saw this and I asked for certain things every single day. But what I, what I saw was like the nature of the universe is what, what happened. And so when I talk about like this higher purpose and why I've shifted into this is that what I'm here to do is be that messenger to people that they can do this. Now I use the modality of, I can teach you how to do it through your career. Cause my whole like corporate experience has been through that. What I'm really doing is I'm helping people awaken their soul's true purpose to do work that matters so that their existence on this earth is fulfilling what they came here to do. That is what I actually do. And so I learned a lot of really powerful lessons. Like I like to say, I, I learned 3 million things. I mean, from the, from the depths of the center of the world to the extremes of the universe. And ever since then, like some of my really like highest level of intuition and things that I can get really divine downloads, I can predict things like it's pretty intense what I can do now. And so when I choose to work with people, like I work very specifically with kind of people that I do because I have tapped into some of this. So the ayahuasca journey was amazing and powerful and incredibly healing. I suffered, P suffered from PTSD. I would say that that's not something that actually affects me anymore. And it was um, like one of the, they've done study after study with ayahuasca and helping um, resolve PTSD. And this was just, it was incredibly transformative. So uh, that's my kind of quick, quick and dirty on. Um, Whoa. I just love your soul so much. Did you have a guide? I did. So I had, um, he doesn't like to call himself a shaman, but he's somebody who he, he had trained in Peru. They, he's gone through extreme, like, like there's sometimes year long, like dietas where they go through and, and they will use a certain plant spirit. So he uses all of these plant spirits. And then they, they actually call in the plants. So when you're going through it and they'll call in the thing. So like your energy represents in front of them in some way, and they pull out the shadows that are inside of you, whatever it is that needs to be healed. And then kind of transmute that energy. It's, it's like to the point where, I mean, you, and they use music and it's just, it is, I had no idea. I didn't prep myself very well as far as like, I didn't do a lot of research, which is, I would recommend actually, cause I don't want you to come in with a preconceived notion of what it should be like, but like, I didn't know what the experience would be like. I just knew that I was feeling called to it. So a lot of times when people ask me of this, 
It's because Aya is calling you. It's calling you to say it's time to come experience this. And you get to lift the veil and see what's kind of behind the thing. So there's a whole bunch of stuff happening right now around plant medicines that really allow us to dive into some of the pieces of our mind where we increase like neuroplasticity and things that pharmaceuticals would not like you to indulge in because you cannot put it in a pill. And so there's a lot of things that are happening on that. So it's one of the things that I really choose. I use work with a lot of plant medicines, different energies in my business now, which is not something I normally talk about, but it is why we can collapse timeframes and increase results. It's because we actually tap into some of the universal abundance in the universe actually. I think that's actually really cool. I have talked to a couple people about their ayahuasca experiences, but both people I think that shared with me about it didn't want to do it again. Oh yeah, I want to definitely do it again. But what I will say is incredibly intense. So like it is, it is really hard. I would say your environment is really important. So mine was very small group. There was only 12 of us in it. So it was really, really small. It was three days. Like, in, I mean, I went completely vegetarian. You have like no salt, no oil for weeks beforehand. Like I was, t- I'll be honest here. I took a medication for PTSD and I had to get off of that. And so like my brain had to recalibrate. And so it, for me, it was like, I don't take anything now. And if you look at like people summing up, like, what did you do? And I was like, yeah, cause I got to see what I'm really supposed to do on this planet. So a lot of times when I see people who have a lot of disease or like they're unwell in many parts of their life, I'm like, it's cause they're not doing the thing they're supposed to be doing here. And so they feel like they've been imprisoned in this skin prison, but we can change a lot of those things. And it doesn't necessarily need ayahuasca to do it. It just needs to be, you have gifts that you're given right now. It's just whether or not you choose to believe what the world has told you or what you believe inside of you. Cause the real answer, like I never come to my people and I'm like, this is what you're going to do. It's never like that. I say, what is it that you want to do? What is it you're good at? What gives you energy? What creates joy in your life? Now, how do we build a strategy to create that on an ongoing basis? I love it. Is there anything that you want to ask my dad? What do you think is the biggest culture issue that he sees that's happening out there today? Great question. Okay. I'm going to let you go. I do have to let somebody in here for watching on the a show on here. So, but you were just so amazing. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Have a wonderful night. Love you. Bye. Bye. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Well, the funny part is, is that this story, wanting to treat people like people and to have a shop or a business where you operate like it's a family is not anything that is new. This is the way business used to run. And this is how Metalite ran. And I did uh, most of the interviewing. Marvin did some too. But uh, we really wanted to be able to be very personal, where not only did we want to know about the candidate, but we always gave them an idea of what kind of company we were, what kind of people we are, and what kind of possibility of a future that we could all have together. So treating people like people is really something that in a hands-on shop is a must. And you want to give promotions from within your company. Sure, you have to bring in sometimes some outside talent, but you also want to have a program where people learn their jobs, can participate, be part of a brainstorming at employee meetings that we would have, and where we would always constantly try to improve our mythology our safety at the company, and where we get everyone involved. And uh, sometimes the best ideas came from people off the floor, where they see and do things. And we're able to incorporate that because they're the ones that are doing the jobs. And sometimes they find a better way. What better way of doing it when you're hands-on doing it yourself? But this idea of having to watch employees or tell them what to do or give them a task, and it has to be done a certain way, you're actually 
stifling your organization. You're actually stifling your employees to where they're not going to be very enthusiastic about the job. If they can't participate in your company, they're not going to be there long. And then the only thing that's holding them is what benefits and what pay you you give them. And yet that isn't the most enticing thing in an organization. It's being a participant in your company is really waves ahead. And where people are respected on all levels is a wave ahead. And that's what Lindsay has found out because my dad also worked at several large companies and was treated like just a number. And he, he would work like five times the amount of work that his job even called for. And he got involved with everyone. And yet big organizations, when a person like my dad would leave the company, they'd say, oh, who was doing that? Oh, Marvin did that too. Oh, Marvin did that. So instead of replacing him with a new person, they'd replace him with five people. And there's a lot of companies that they have that five-year rule or a seven-year rule where they try to turn over all their help within a certain period of time. Companies like even Avon would do that. And certainly Cooper Lighting does that where you're not only replaceable, but they want you to be replaceable. They want to clean out the staff and bring in a new staff all the time. The story about Lindsay's dad, where you can have all these wonderful qualifications and during a tough period in the economy, you can lose your job. And I agree with her. It's a dirty word that we're overqualified. Certain organizations don't even want to give a person a second chance to get back in the game because they'd rather have somebody young somebody that is, believe it or not, less qualified, where there's a growing path for them, and it takes someone that is already achieved certain things and can't pay or offer a position at that height, and to start someone at a lower height and at lower pay, they just feel like that person will be disgruntled or won't work as hard to achieve because the pay won't compensate. They only look at it as a compensation of pay and not whether this person, if they get into your organization can actually add value and where this person may be able to be fast-tracked to a higher position if he's able to prove that he can really help your organization jump leaps and bounds. Very narrow-minded sometimes these big organizations are. Definitely. And I think that she's fueled by it. Well, this is what has made her or has really given her the enthusiasm to really be that hands-on person that wants to take all applicants and all team members and all people that she's involved in is to personally know what their strengths are, what their purpose is, try to help them find their purpose if they don't have one, see what really makes them tick and see how she can put together within an organization certain personalities where you don't have to constantly be running an ad. She gave the Amazon example where she would get 7,000 applicants, maybe for three or five or 15 positions. That doesn't mean you, you throw away the other 6,985 applicants. Otherwise, you're going through the process again. She would really spend the effort and time to see if some of these other people, and probably also customers of Amazon, stay happy that she still makes a contact with them. She just doesn't throw them to the curb or push them under the rug, where she tries very hard to see if she can match and see where they might be able to fit in the organization, maybe not even for what they've applied for. She's looking at people's strengths. She's looking at people's purpose. She's looking at how can this person maybe down the road even fit into our network and where we can keep our company growing and be profitable. 
Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 